This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras Twins Edition. MLB.com's Mark Feinsand sat down with new Twins Senior Vice President and General Manager Thad Levine to discuss his vision for the Twins and the challenges of rebuilding a franchise. He also talks about his expectations for both Brian Dozier and Byron Buxton. Here's Mark. You worked in corporate marketing for Rockport, did work with Reebok and Coca-Cola before starting a baseball career in 1999 with the Rockies. What prompted you to make that jump? So when I graduated from college at Haverford College, I had applied to every single baseball team at that time. And I got rejections, four formal rejections from teams. One was actually from the Montreal Expos, which kind of dates me a little bit. And I remember I was ecstatic. I figured I was so close. I had been formally rejected by four teams. So absent of an opportunity to go work in a baseball franchise right out of college, I tried to pursue other sports entities. And I figured that the Reebok company uh, was one that could offer an inroad into professional baseball, if a little bit tangentially. So I started there. Within six weeks of working there, or I think six or seven weeks, they farmed me out to Rockport, which was one of their subsidiaries, which was a leap away from anything professionally <laughs> athletic. Uh, it was much more geared towards elder gentlemen's footwear. Um, so I then made the best of that situation, realizing I was a little bit further away from sports than I'd like, and got involved in... Basically, what at that point was was a burgeoning market, which was online marketing. Uh, so, got very involved in their internet development, marketing therein, and their brand brand building online. You and your dad bonded over the Orioles when you were a kid, uh, and I read that he used to send you several trade ideas each week while you were in Texas. Does he still? What's his initial take on the Twins so far? So he's he, as the time, so this has basically been our career, the two of us. So when I was a kid. As you mentioned, he took myself and my sister and my, and my mom to, to baseball games in, in what was Memorial Park at that point. And it was a you know, tremendously great bonding experience. It was an hour and a half drive each way from Virginia to Baltimore, and we'd watch the game together. And a lot of bonding took place during that time. So as I've gotten through my career, this has really been our time, my time to give back to him. So as much as he took to me to games when I was a kid, I get to take him to games now that he's a little bit older. Um, I'm guessing he put up with a ton of my questions when I was uh, <laughs> younger watching Orioles games, so I now put up with all of his questions, some of which I will say are self-serving as he is a very avid fantasy player. Some of, some of his trade proposals I think may benefit his own team uh, <laughs> equally to the Twins. So he's excited about the Twins. He's excited about the young players on the Twins. You may not be surprised to hear the lion's share of his roster is, uh, is Rangers right now. 
So I think he's in the trade market, seeing if uh, <laughs> there's a way to acquire maybe a Buxton or a Dozier to be named later in, in return for a Ranger, existing Ranger. I'm surprised they let him in a fantasy league knowing what you do. Well, I think uh, it's it's a like one of those leagues where, unfortunately, I think literally someone had to pass away for him to gain <laughs> entrance, and he's been in it now for a long time. Uh, it's a time-honored league. They may have let him in before they knew that, uh, but there's been some mild restrictions on how much I'm allowed to assist him. <laughs> uh, while researching and preparing for this, I read that Paul DePodesto was a youth soccer teammate of yours as a kid. Did you guys talk baseball back then too? Absolutely. So Paul, Paul was a was a friend growing up. Uh, I was really fortunate. I think you know, in this game, is very tough to to get your foot in the door. And I think it's a lot about who you know, and then kind of once you've established who you know, it's what you do with the opportunity that they, maybe they present to you. So Paul and I grew up in the same neighborhood. We kind of were on parallel paths. He ended up going to a rival high school. We played sports against each other through high school. He ended up obviously working for the Oakland Athletics. He advised me uh, through my as I was trying to get into baseball, and so too did Josh Burns, who I went to college with. So those were my two kind of mentors as I was trying fervently to get into the game. Uh, they both provided great counsel, and they're both still good friends. So Paul's with the Cleveland Browns now for a little more than a year. Chief Strategy Officer, uh, what did you first think when you heard he was making that move? I couldn't think of a better person to seize an opportunity like that. I think any if you spend any time with Paul, you realize that his intellect and his drive really transcend any one industry. And so my expectation, whether it was doing something in football or politics or for a Fortune 100 company, I think he's right there in the top of the list of people who I've ever been exposed to who I thought was going to be hyper-successful in whatever he pursued, and that I would have been actually more surprised if he only had one pursuit in his career rather than multiple pursuits. Do you think this could become a trend in the future, where executives from one sport jump to another, or do you think he's a unique case? I don't think it's a unique case. I, I think that it's something that baseball as a whole probably should be a little bit more open-minded to. I think two fallacies we have is... One, the concept that the supply and demand curve is so favorable to the employer in baseball that we can literally have 100 people lined up outside the door for any one job. In practice, people are a competitive advantage, and so you need to treat them as more valued people within your organization than just that. And then two is I think we, we feel as if our, there's something endemic to our sport where you have to only fish off the pier of people who have worked in baseball before at the you know director or above level. I think teams are going to start looking outside of our industry to try to draw people in who have been successful in other walks of life. So I would surely think other industries may look to baseball to some of the people who have been more successful to try to try to drive their franchises in, in various industries. You spent 11 seasons as the assistant GM in Texas under John Daniels, so while we're dropping information, went to my high school. Uh, John compared you to Ben Zobrist, citing your versatility in business, baseball, scouting, and personnel. What do you feel is your biggest strength? Uh, I mean, first of all, I think that's... Uh, very kind and a very glowing comment. Uh, you know, I, I think the thing I enjoy the most is working with people and trying to get the most out of them. I think one thing as I've progressed in my career, I've really started to own is kind of my own narrative. I think in the game, there's a perception that everyone should be on a path to becoming a general manager or a pinnacle decision maker in an, in an organization. And it really made me do some soul searching and made me realize that I think there's two pursuits you can have, two paths. One is like the legacy of personal success and achievement, and the other one is the legacy of helping other people realize their dreams. 
and I realize that there's some people who have been hyper successful who have done the former, while there's been others who have been successful who have done the latter, and then my comfort zone is really the latter. I, I really enjoy working with people, trying to get to know them and try to find out what what it is that they really are passionate about and what drives them day in and day out and, and trying to maximize their ability to, to realize their potential in the workplace. So those are the things that I draw the most satisfaction from and I think really where I put my attention. How have your views or philosophies on the game itself, what, what's happening on the field and the rosters changed at all since the time you first started in this business to now? I think when I started, I, I was looking at it through the lens, the, the two, two lenses which may have changed slightly. One was just kind of awe and fanaticism. Uh, which I think, you know, 18 years later, I'm still a fan. You know, that's the beauty of everyone who works in the game. I think first and foremost, we're fans. But I think that's been a little bit more well-rounded now, whereas that was probably a little bit more of the, the lion's share of how I looked at through the lens. And then, too, is I think I have a better sense. I may have been a little bit more analytical and empirical in my first approach to, to evaluating players. I think now getting to be around the individuals and understand their personalities and what's going on off the field as well as what's going on the field, I have a much greater sense of the 360 degrees of a player rather than just one aspect of valuing them. When you speak of the awe and the fanaticism, growing up an Orioles fan, roughly your age, I'm guessing you were a big Cal Ripken guy? Huge Cal Ripken, huge Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray was, uh, when I was growing up, was seemingly the most clutch person I'd ever been around. and so. Like, I grew up in Memorial Stadium where the chant of Eddie, Eddie was uh, prevalent every time I went in between those two guys and guys like Ken Singleton, like there's a lot of a lot of things to cheer for as a Baltimore Orioles fan. I assume you've met them at some point through the years? I've met Cal Ripken, I've not met the other two gentlemen, but uh, yeah, I had a chance to meet Cal Ripken in a very auspicious way. John Daniels and I were walking around Yankee Stadium 2010, the ALCS, I think it was game three, before game three of it. Sometimes you have a little time to kill in those playoff games. And he and I went out to the monuments in center field. It was a really special moment. I really had not spent much time out there. But John had grown up a Mets fan, so he had spent a little bit more time in Yankee Stadium. And we were, we were looking at the, the statues, and lo and behold, the third person there who was looking at him was Cal Ripken. <laughs> and so he came over. I guess he was doing the game that night. Right. And uh, so he came over. We had a brief conversation. So I, I think I... Contained myself. I asked uh, JD afterwards if I had, if I acted appropriately. He said I, I kept it above board, but I was <laughs> I was dying to give the man a hug. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next time you go to New York or when the Yankees come to Minnesota, if Ken Singleton's on the trip, make sure to introduce yourself. I would love to. One of the nicest men you'll ever meet. Um, when you were introduced in November, you said you're approaching this job, and I quote: "As I want this to be the last stop in my career." Uh, is that a realistic goal for an executive in this era? Or are there any long-time GMs you've tried to model yourself after? Yeah. I, I think, ostensibly, no, that's not realistic. You know, I think that's one of the, maybe the downsides of our game is I remember one of the first things I was told when I started my career 18 years ago was be prepared to move around. Your job security allows for you to have a job in baseball but not for one any, any one franchise for too long. And if you've worked in the game long enough, you should get fired at some point. So it's, it's interesting counsel as you're entering and embarking upon a career. I think it's unique to the Minnesota Twins. So I think as every team is that never-ending pursuit for a competitive advantage, I think one thing that the Polad family has done very distinctly is they aspire to allow you to pursue your dream job and have a career with one franchise for an, an extended period of time. So I'm entering into this with the hope that I can be the next general manager who stays with the Minnesota Twins as long as Terry Ryan did and Andy McPhail before him. 
uh, that's the models I'm hoping to, to follow because at this stage there's a balance between family and baseball and I'm supremely respectful of the sacrifices my wife and my children have made along the way. They're in their formative years and I want to make sure that I put my family first now that I've had a chance to move them once. I don't aspire to move them again. John, I believe, was the youngest GM in the league when he got hired. You worked with him for a long time. He's been there for over a decade. What, what have you learned most working under John? That your boss can be your best friend, probably. You know, I, I think, honestly, like it's the environment he created uh, was so ripe for sound decision-making because he had a unique ability to synthesize recommendations from a vast number of people but never hold anyone supremely accountable for the recommendations they made. You know, he and I talked openly about sometimes we're want in the game to talk about, well, this decision's a quote, no-brainer. And I think what we learned very early in our careers when we made some colossal mistakes on the backdrop of this being a no-brainer is it's never a no-brainer because that implies the other guy is an idiot and nobody, <laughs> else in the, nobody else in the industry is an idiot. So if it's a no-brainer, we're missing something because we may be the ones who are the idiots. So I, I think he did an excellent job of getting a lot of information from people and then distilling it down and making consistently sound judgments. Furthermore, he just created this exceptional environment where we were all collegial, we were all friends, but we all pushed one another to excel and held each other to a very high standard of accountability. And I think I really learned working for him that in sports we're all very knowledgeable about the concept of chemistry in the clubhouse or you know in a locker room, but we never talk about the with regards to the decision-making unit. John Daniels cornered the market on like high-end chemistry amongst the decision-making unit. And I think as a result, we didn't make all perfect decisions by any stretch. We, we had our fair share of mistakes, but we made more good decisions than bad. And I think it stemmed from the chemistry that he created amongst his inner circle. You said, uh, and I quote again, that you're more of a centrist than a leftist or a rightist when it comes to analytics versus scouting. Uh, there are some that believe sabermetrics have become more important than scouting. There are some who believe the opposite. Um, do you think scouting has become less important league-wide than it used to be? Or do you think analytics have simply just caught up to scouting in terms of importance? I think when we refer to scouting now, maybe it means something different than it, than it did 15 to 20 years ago when we really were referring exclusively to a gentleman with a straw hat sitting with a gun in hand <laughs> right. and, and a pad of paper and a pen. I, I think in a stopwatch, you know, I think now... We ask so much more out of our scouts. I, I think, you know, as is, you see oftentimes in industries, that the pendulum has swung so vastly in the other way where everyone's now talking about analytics. And I think there are a few teams who have reduced decision makings by and large to formulas. But I think, I think what you're seeing more universally across uh, the game, and this is why I refer to myself as a centrist, is I think the analytics is a piece of the puzzle, which maybe 15 years ago wasn't or if it was, it was a minute piece, and it's now more of a, a prominent piece. But it's nothing more than that. And I think the teams that are really excelling right now are still incorporating analytics in addition to all the scouting, in addition to all the health and uh, nutrition and sleep studies and, and every sort of you know, advanced peak performance metric you can factor into decisions. It's just lending itself to a lot more sound decision making. We've seen every team in the league now add an analytics department. I think the last one finally did last year. Um, what do you think will be the next new wave as teams look to further their advantage? Well, I think the new wave is we, we've seen that, that ship leave the harbor, and it's probably the Dodgers and 
the Red Sox and the Cubs and, you know, this concept of the umbrella of the peak performance. And I just referenced a few of those. I think it's the, the sleep studies. Right. It's, you know, the blood profiles. It's the nutrition programs. Uh, you know, much more stringent knowledge of what guys are doing in the off season, and so I think you, you've seen that those three teams I think are on the the front the front line of that, and, and that's not surprising whatsoever. But my guess is, in as you just mentioned, the last team started with an analytics department. I'm guessing five years from now will be the last team to have a peak performance department. <laughs> uh, you know that incorporates mental skills and nutrition and sleep studies and those sorts of things. So I think that's. That's already starting, but it will be fully embraced here shortly. MLB's StatCast has introduced some of these metrics to the baseball world, the fans' world, in the last couple of years. Do you think that's good for the game, that fans are, are now taking such, or at least some fans, are really getting into the analytics side of things and looking at the game through a different lens than they used to? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, anytime you can capture the the interest of a new sect of fans I think it's it's helpful to the game and I think you know they've done so much to try to make the interest level to the next generation of fans and I think that is appealing at that level I think we should continue to do more of that but I think it's been a great effort you know the sport and as a whole you know a, has been known to be a little bit behind some of the other sports and being progressive and I think this is an effort that they made to be progressive I think they're getting rewarded by fan interest and hopefully that'll stimulate more to move forward. If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinsand. There are a lot of managers in the league that have had solid playing careers. What does it mean to have a Hall of Famer uh, running your running your clubhouse? It's a, we have one of the best of all those guys who had solid careers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it certainly is one of the best swings. Yes. Um, Probably the most hits, I would think. I would, right? I would think so. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, I, I feel like at a successful sports franchise, baseball and otherwise, you know, you really don't need to look too much further than the relationship between the owner, the pinnacle decision maker, and the manager. And if you have harmony between those three, I think you have a chance to have sustained success. If you have harmony between two but not the third, you may be able to spike up at some point, but it's going to probably be tough to sustain. And quite frankly, as you well know, the teams that have disharmony across all three are in disarray, by and large. And you really don't have to look too much further than that. So at any rate, Paul, you know, the minute uh, Derek and I got these opportunities, he was the first person we reached out to and sat down with, and he's been tremendous. So aside from his accomplishments on the field, which I think lends itself to a, a extreme credibility within the clubhouse, he's also an extremely smart man. Uh, he's very well prepared, very bright, and a, an advanced strategist, and he's a, it's been a great pairing for Derek and I so far. You and Derek were both assistant GMs last year. Now you're working together to run the Twins. How have the two of you meshed to this point? I think we, we I think very well. You know, by and large, we did not have a robust relationship before we started here. Uh, we had mutual friends who I think we were very connected to, and I give a ton of credit to Mark Shapiro and Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff in that regard. Uh, those were guys that had been friends of mine and mentors through my career and obviously guys that had touched Derek very closely working with him in Cleveland. So when Derek was being pursued, I think they all said that this could be a good match and they you know, vouched for us re respectively. Derek and I had had enough interaction, I think, to 
to see it, and then once we've gotten a chance to work together, it's been it's been pretty special so far. What's the biggest culture change you guys are aiming for in year one and beyond? We have, so I think I think it's a fewfold. One is uh, we're taking over for one of the most accomplished baseball figures uh, it, this game has seen for the last few decades. And, and I said this before, but I feel as if Terry may be one of the best talent evaluators the game's ever seen. Derek and I walk in with a very different skill set. So I think from a cultural standpoint, Terry kind of had surrounded himself with people who would compliment him. And in practice, we actually need somebody like Terry to compliment us. So we're, we're maybe seeking uh, different levels of contribution from the people around us because we're looking to fill in some of those gaps on the, on the player evaluation side. So we're, I think, stimulating some growth within our organization in an area where Terry was a little bit more self-sufficient. So there's been a little bit of a shift in that regard. And then the other aspect is, you know, it's a franchise that by and large has not gone outside of the organization to seek director level and above. In fact, somebody said at our press conference, I don't know if this is 100% accurate, that we're the first two people who were hired out since Andy McPhail uh, in 1985, I guess I was. Right. So, um, so I think where does the shift begin is it's, it's that it's pretty significant because we're bringing in some ideas from the outside. But the way we look at it is moment in time we're bringing the best of what the Minnesota Twins, the Cleveland Indians, and the Texas Rangers have to offer in terms of intellectual capital. We're hopeful that the confluence of those three could lead to something pretty special. It's almost like you saw my next question. Uh, with so many executives changing teams on an annual, seemingly annual basis, you and Derek, fresh from the Rangers and Indians, uh, is there any such thing as secretive data anymore? You know, I think there is, and, and I will say this, I, I think that Derek approached the transition the same way I did, which was relationships that he had formed there uh, were similar to the ones that I had formed with John Daniels and the ownership. So candidly, I really just didn't take too much from Texas, so it was all that I could cram into between my ears was what I walked out the door with. And I think just go home and write everything down <laughs> right away. I think part of the excitement about the challenge was to kind of remake some of those things and to put your own stamp on it and to collaborate with, with Derek and with Rob Anthony and Vernon Followell and Mike Radcliffe and the guys who are already here. So I don't think we had any, we, we didn't walk in the door with a firm blueprint of this is the A to Z. We, we came more in with an open mind and a knowledge of what we had been exposed to over the last decade in our respective spots, but much more with a thought towards let's all co-author this and not that we work in any sort of dictatorial position we really have stressed the, the, the art of collaboration and that the belief that we can only be as good as the, the the recommendations that are made by the people around us to make the decisions that we're ultimately be charged to make. You guys come in and, and the two of you and everybody working with you says we're going to put our fingerprints on this. We're going to you know mold this team in the, in the way we want. But at the same time, you inherit a roster of players. You inherit a farm system. How much time does it take to really turn you know? turn the team over into the vision you have? How long do you think that process takes? You know, it's an excellent question because you think you know a franchise based upon reading copious scouting reports and watching video and watching games. But in practice, until you get around the actual individuals that represent the heartbeat of the franchise, both in the front office, player development and scouting, and then ultimately the players, you don't really know that organization. And so that probably was one of the biggest challenges Derek and I had. In our previous roles, we were kind of embedded with the team, so we had a little bit more uh, 
institutional knowledge there. So that's been the biggest transition is walking to a place where not only do I not know where the copying machine is, but I also don't know what makes Hori Polanco tick. And so that's been really our focus. The, the good news from our perspective is that Jim Polad from the outset effectively gave us the refrain of don't make the right decision that's present right now, make the right decision. And so there's not, this has not been done against the backdrop of artificial urgency, which I think can, can cloud decision-making processes and harry you to an end which is not productive. So we've been able to really take our time. Uh, his, his philosophy on being patient, but then married up with the fact that by the time Dirk and I actually got these positions, it was kind of past the hiring process for other teams. So we were gonna need to wait a year anyway, which is perfect. That allows us to evaluate all of our systems, technology, people, uh, and try to do our best to augment them and put them in the right positions as we're trying to kind of redefine the Minnesota Twins way. Uh, you guys brought in former Twins, Torrey Hunter, Latroy Hawkins, Michael Kadire as special assistants this winter, joining other ex-Twins like Rod Carew, Tony Leva, Burke Wylab, and Jack Morris, Ken Herbeck. What role will they play, and why was it important to have such names from franchises history involved in that way. We're trying to convince those guys to keep playing, but, but they seem reluctant. <laughs> well, Troy they, might. They look good. They look good, but they're reluctant. Uh, so it was born out of uh, past experiences that Derek and I had. Uh, Derek with John McDonald, I think, primarily, and Jason Giambi in Cleveland, and then my experiences with, with Michael Young, Darren Oliver, to name a few, in Texas. I think one area where people who have less of a playing background really can be short-sighted is the benefits of having somebody with a playing background as a counsel. And so first and foremost, those three guys are going to be involved in as much of our decision-making process as they care to be involved in because I think their perspective is essential to us making well-rounded decisions. So far, they've all come to spring training. They're all going to come back to spring training. Uh, LaTroy and Tori have been out on the amateur trail uh, taking a look at some of the amateur players. Michael has a keen interest in kind of getting to know the inner tickings of a front office. And so we're going to expose them to as much as we possibly can. LaTroy has a passion for pitching and has expressed a desire to get involved in uh, pitching instruction. So it's kind of, we, this is not superficial. This is not as some sort of ornamental job where they get to just say they're still affiliated with the team and they go to a few luncheons. These guys are rolling up their sleeves, and the reason we engage with them is because of the passion they express towards the franchise, which was very palpable when you talk to them. So hopefully we're scratching an itch they have, but one thing that I know is certain is they've already helped us immensely in some of our conversations that we've had with players and ones that we'll have in the future. Twins lost 103 games last season, haven't been to the postseason since 2010, haven't won a playoff game since 2004, haven't won a title since 1991. With all that in the backdrop, what would you consider to be a successful season in 2017? You know, that wasn't that uplifting, what you just said. <laughs> the uh, facts, I didn't make them up. Okay, fair enough. There wasn't much colorization, but that was, that was it. So, you it's know, been a while since you know, they've won. How about that? You know, the irony of that declaration, in part, is because Derek and I look at what transpired last year in the, kind of through a lens of opportunity. Uh, I feel for the fan base here, the team who had to sit through a 103 loss season, we've all done that, and it's excruciating. Typically, as a front office executive, when you see that on the horizon, you go see a lot of minor league games starting in about mid-June, and you never come home. Uh, but no, we can only go up from here. We also get the first pick in the draft as a function of the torture that they endured last year. 
We have a robust uh, pool internationally. We have the first uh, waiver claim position, and we're intending to use all of those to try to help uh, really slingshot us back in the right direction. As we talked to Jim Polat through the interview process, our aspiration is not to follow in the very successful footsteps of the Houston Astros and the Cubs where they did have multiple seasons in which they were pick, picking the top two to three, two to five in the, in the draft. Like we're hopeful we were, we're picking once and once only. So I think there's a sense that this team probably experienced somewhere between the fifth and tenth percentile of outcomes last year just due to the injuries and, and setbacks for some of our players. There's a wealth of young talent on the field which belies a normal team to that, that loses 103 games. Most teams that lose 100-plus games have been so decimated by injuries that they're bereft of really carry-forward talent, and they're really populated at the end of the year by a bunch of minor league free agents who have just been called into duty as a result of the, the myriad of injuries that the team has suffered. We, had a, we have a wealth of young pre-arbitration position player talent, some burgeoning pitching talent, that you know suggests that this team has a chance to do a lot better. And then, you know, Don Welke, longtime scout, always used to say to us, you know, whatever we think of our players is secondary to what the industry does, and the industry will let you know how valuable your players are. This offseason, we had a number of teams inquiring and trade about some of our players. So, my guess is they don't view those players as contributing to a last place finish, but rather that you know, if things were done over, things could go in a different direction. So. My hope for this year is we play better fundamental baseball. I think it's a first and foremost for this team. Uh, that's what this franchise was known for. As you referenced, the, the long hangover since we've been more playoff relevant. Those teams were, everyone in the league viewed those teams as highly athletic, very defensive, you know, pitch-to-contact type teams, executed the fundamentals both offensively and defensively. It's not reinventing the wheel, uh, but it's getting back to that level of identity first and foremost, and I think once you do that, we're going to start playing relevant games deeper and deeper into the season with the ultimate goal of playing relevant games in September and then knocking on the door in October. Even with the last place finish, the season was not bereft of positives. Uh, Brian Dozier had a monster season last year, especially in the power department. Is it realistic to expect that kind of season from him again? You know, this question was much more optimistic than the previous one. <laughs> I, I said, we're, we're good. there were some positives too. Uh, you know, so it's hard, it's hard to ask a person to deliver 42 home runs again and have the home run rate that he posted second half of last year, which was almost rivaling that of, like, the Barry Bond season. Ruthian almost. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was an epic run that he went on. So I don't think we're expecting him to, to reach that again, nor do I think that he needs to do that to have an excellent season. Uh, he's taking monumental steps forward to becoming one of the devout leaders on this team. That's, that's a huge value. I think he's you know well above average defensive player, which gets lost a little bit in the fact that he hits 42 home runs and what comes with that. So I, I fully expect he will have a huge impact from a power standpoint at second base, whether it's in the form of 42 home runs or fewer with some more doubles, I don't know. But one thing I know has been huge for this franchise is the step forward he's taken from a leadership standpoint. If nothing else, I assume the year he had has to boost his personal confidence heading into the season, whether he needed it or not. Well, and you know, I think it's a testament to just how valuable that, or how, how strong that position is that he's not representing the USA and the World Baseball Classic. I mean, that's a testament to Daniel Murphy and Ian Kinsler. I mean, the position's about as rich as this game has seen, you know, in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, but I think he's right there in that conversation with that grouping of, and, you know, across the world, you know, the Robinson Canos and Rugnet Odors and Jose Altuves. I mean, you look up and down the league and it's the, the position and Dustin Pedroia. 
uh, and I don't mean to leave anybody out, okay. which I'm sure, I'm sure I'm sure I am. But the position is extremely rich right now. For him to be, you know, towards the top of that class is a true testament to his achievements. Phil Hughes had a really good season when he got to or in 2015. Uh, battled some physical problems last year. Underwent surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome. How important is he to your rotation this year? Immensely. You know, as we look at a as a rotation that really struggled last year, injury wise and performance wise, we knew we weren't going to be able to go play on the high end of the free agent market. And quite frankly, we didn't view this offseason's free agent market to be really too, too significant on the starting pitching side. So we look at Phil Hughes as we just went on the free agent market and acquired a number three or four starter and to, for a team that was desperately in need of that. So it's it's a subtle move we made this offseason, but just by getting healthier in our starting rotation, and, and Phil is, is at the top of that list, I think we have a chance to really give this team a shot in the arm because with... Uh, the lack of performance we got out of the starting rotation put such undue pressure on the bullpen that was by and large pretty inexperienced and that started taking on water you know towards the end of the year as any would so to be able to take some pressure off them and layer on top of it the quality he can deliver could really be a huge step forward for this franchise. Pretty much ever since Joe Maurer reached the majors especially after he signed his contract here this has been considered his team. How important is he to this franchise on and off the field? Well, I think he's the face of the franchise. You know, he's he's been uh, the personality that uh, people draw are drawn to. You know, and, and it's in a long lexicon of really high-end, dynamic players that have played for this franchise that have dated back decades now. Uh, but I think he's the most respected player on our team. Probably one of the most respected guys in the game. Uh, he's kind of transitioned a little bit in his career from from behind the plate to now first base. I. Uh, but he's you know, still, in our minds, one of the best table setters in the game. Uh, and it's a great balance to our youth in the sense that we've got a few uh, free-swinging youngsters who could learn a lot from watching how he approaches an at-bat. We've seen Buxton uh, start to show his talent. Do you think this could be a season where he breaks out and becomes the player that, that everybody's expecting him to be? I talked about it earlier. I think he may be one of the banner players that I reference in terms of when you juxtapose what you know about him anecdotally, through scouting reports, through video, through watching him live, versus when you actually get to meet the man, uh, how much higher regard I have for him now than I did before taking this opportunity. He's the the, the very unique blend of confidence and humility that is it comes across as very authentic and sincere. So not only do I think he has a chance to take a step on the field, but I think he has a chance to start you know, molding himself after the Joe Mowers and Justin Morneaux and Kirby Puckett's and Torrey Hunters and Kent Herbeck's as one of the you know, future leaders of a very storied franchise. Miguel Sano saw a dip in some of his numbers last year on base and slugging in particular, but at 23, that's not really that unusual. Uh, how important is it for him this year to make adjustments, adjustments in his third season? It seems like... A lot of rookies have that sophomore slump because pitchers have made adjustments to them. Now it's important for him to make those adjustments. Do you think he's prepared to do that? I think it's a singular focus right now. You know, in, in my understanding, and once again, I was not here for this, but I, I, I think the, uh, the experiment of trying him in the outfield probably really put a lot of stress on him as he probably recognized early on that he was ill-suited for that opportunity. The fact that he's now settled back and in a position that he's very comfortable in, I think allows him to try to be the well-rounded player that he should be. And I don't know to what extent that impacted his offensive season last year, the, the experiment in the outfield, but I see a guy who's very confident right now and talking to the, the, the coaches who have been around him last year in this, they're talking about a different person, you know, just in terms of the, the presence and, and the swagger that he has. But 
kind of how he goes, so too will this franchise go, because he's part of that heart of, of this core between he and, and Buxton and Kepler and, and Rosario and Polanco that have a chance to really shape this franchise moving forward. And he's the guy who could be the anchor in the middle of the, the lineup being the, the, the really plus run producer. So we're really hopefully he takes the next step. We're trying to put all the resources around him to facilitate that. Well, and on a nice positive note for you, a few weeks away from opening day, what are you most excited about with this team this season? I'm most excited about seeing the growth of that, that young core um, because I think that has a chance to be really special for our fans. I'm excited about seeing Brian Dozier take the next step as a leader and really emerge, you know, rather than just a small market guy who happened to have 42 home runs of being what he deserves to be considered one of the best players in the game. I'm excited for the pitching staff to get healthy and see what this team can actually do. And then come mid-season or so, I'm excited to see some of our younger players come up from the farm system and cut their teeth at the big league level and start to become part of the next wave of the, the Minnesota Twins. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.